remain standing for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, sorry, verse, chapter 10, verse 13, we read this amazing promise. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, ah, that song says it all. Especially that chorus. Ah, let heaven come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I've written a sermon, but I sure would love not to preach it. I would love that even before this service ends, that we would hear the trumpet sound of God and we would be called into your presence. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And if there's anyone in this room who's not ready, Lord, I pray even now they would make themselves ready by placing their trust in Christ alone as the Savior from sin and submitting to Him as the ruler, the Lord of their life. Lord, bless your word today as it's preached. And Lord, may we hear it and may I preach it with expectation of your return. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right. Hey, good to see y'all this morning. It's Father's Day. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Happy Father's Day to all you uh, men in here. Uh, I'm going to uh, start by just letting you kind of catch up on where we are in this series through the letter or book of 1 Corinthians to catch everybody back up about what's going on in today's uh, passage. And, and this is what's going on. The church in the city of Corinth is jacked up. Like this is a church in trouble. Corinth is having what we have called a bit of an identity crisis. Like they don't know who they are and they don't know whose they are. Like they've forgotten to find their identity in Christ. And so they're living out this identity crisis and, and they're doing all kinds of just crazy messed up stuff. As one professor at uh, Reform Seminary puts it, he says, as you open the letter of 1 Corinthians, you are being parachuted into a dumpster fire. Man, that's it. Like, that is exactly what's going on. Because you read this letter and you think, wait a minute, these are Christians? Like, this is church? Like, I don't think I would go to that church. And I'm pretty messed up myself. Like, there is rampant sexual immorality. There's idolatry, there's division, there's incest. Like people are getting drunk during church at communion. It's that messed up. Like it's a dumpster fire. And you know that if you're driving through a city, like, and your children are in the back seat, and you see a dumpster that is on fire, you don't stop and ask those guys around the dumpster for directions. Why? Because they're in no position to give any. And the church of Corinth is in no position to be given directions. And so in this letter, Paul is the one who is giving out the directions. And he's directing them back to the gospel. Like back to where they should be finding their true identity. The gospel is not something that you kind of have as a front door to your faith. 
Like it's not the front door of our church that we responded to the gospel and everything after that is works. It's gospel from beginning to end. The same grace that was available to me when I trusted Christ as my Savior is available to me now. My identity is gospel. But they have forgotten that. Now, if you looked at this church, I mean, this church, the church of Corinth would seem really normal. I mean, they're gifted. Good things are happening. There's a lot of people. Like Corinth was very normal. In fact, they were so normal that people in the city of Corinth would fit right in. Like they would show up and they would see no difference between those people and the people who were visiting. They were normal, but their behavior was not normative, meaning like they were not the standard. They were not the example. They were not the model that you wanted to follow. And we know that every church, including ours, faces issues like this. Like we face, and churches face issues of division and issues of immorality and issues of substance abuse, etc. But we should never respond to these issues by throwing up our hands and saying something like, well, you know, these kind of things are pretty normal. What you going to do, right? Like you show up at the church of Corinth, oh, that dude's sleeping with his mom. That's messed up. But, you know, these things happen. Like, what are you going to do? You know, those people are getting drunk at communion. Well, you know, what are you going to do? Like they didn't deal with it. it. It's like if someone told you that they had just found out that they have uh, a very treatable form of cancer And then they told you that their response to that diagnosis was simply, well, these sort of things happen from time to time. What you going to do? Well, something, like something beats nothing. Like you don't just sit around and think that because you recognize you have cancer that it's going to go away. You don't deny the problem and think it's going to go away. It never goes away. Cancer doesn't shrink on its own. Like, it's not going to go away. It's only going to grow. It's only going to get bigger. Like, ignoring a diagnosis of cancer doesn't make it go away. It may be a normal diagnosis that people receive, but that's not a normal or a healthy response. And guys, in the very same way, ignoring problem behaviors in your family, ignoring problem behaviors in the church, do not make them go away. And so Paul is addressing them one by one. And when we get to chapter 10, Paul is at the tail end of answering one of their questions regarding eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, just hearing that issue, you may think that this was an issue that was a very, very much a first century problem, right? Like the, the church in Corinth was divided into two camps. One camp thought, hey, you know what? At the temple, they take this food, they sacrifice it to this false god, and then they provide it for anybody who wants to eat at a restaurant or they sell it in the market, marketplace. It's okay to eat this food. In fact, it's even okay to go to the pagan temple and enjoy some of the feast because the food is so good. Now, the other half of the church was saying, What? Like, that is wrong. How could that be a good thing? And if it is a good thing, does that mean that you can synchronize Christianity and paganism? Does that mean I can be an idolater and a Christian at the same time? Like, it seems like a very first century problem, but there were a lot of issues 
behind this one issue. I mean, issues like pride. Like half the church had a real overconfidence, like in their own wisdom. Like they can handle this. There was, it led to this self-sufficiency. Like I know, I know how close to the edge I can get, you know, without falling off. It's all good. Like, why are you making such a big deal of this? It's just meat. It's just an idol. Idols aren't real. We all have knowledge. Added to these was a total, total disregard for the other people either inside the church or outside the church. And so Paul spends three full chapters answering this question. In chapter Eight, he gives this answer. He says, you need to adjust your standards to the conscience of others. Like, I know you had that freedom, but you have some weak brothers and sisters in Christ who don't understand freedom, and you're leading them into sin. You need to adjust your standards to their conscience, not yours. And then in chapter 9, he says, in fact, you need to go further than that. You need to adjust your lifestyle to advance the gospel. Not thinking simply of those inside the church, but those outside the church. Sometimes you will express a freedom for the sake of advancing the gospels. Other times you will restrict yourself of that freedom for the same purpose. Like you can't say, well, you know what? I'm an, I'm a missionary and the people I'm a mission to, missionary to are the ones who let me do all the things I want to do. It doesn't work that way. Right? Though I'm free, I make my slave, myself a slave to everyone so that I might win some of them. And so, in fact, chapter 9 is just a long illustration. Like with Paul using his own ministry as an example to show what the principle of living for others would look like in a real world scenario. And then at the end of chapter 9... As if the illustration wasn't enough to kind of grab their attention, Paul launches into a second illustration, an illustration within an illustration from the world of competitive sports to communicate just how seriously we should take this problem, just how seriously we should take this issue. And then he wraps things up with a personal application, just like he did in chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, remember, he says, Hey, you know what? If it causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. And then he illustrates with his own life. Chapter 9, he ends with this statement. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Like, I'm not above messing up. Like, just because I'm doing well right now doesn't mean I'm going to be doing well tomorrow. Just because this isn't an issue in my life, this isn't a weakness in my life today doesn't mean that it can't be one tomorrow or a year from now or five years from now. I discipline my body and keep it under control. And then as if Paul anticipates the Corinthian church rolling their eyes and saying something like, hey, Paul, come on, buddy, buddy, you're blowing this way out of proportion. Three chapters? Are you kidding me? Like, you're blowing this way out of proportion. I've got this. Like, I know what I can do. I know where the line is. I would never, like, I would never cross that line. I would never become an idolater. I would never step into that kind of sin. I've got this. And so in chapter 10, 
to answer that question, Paul begins to illustrate the last statement in chapter 9. Like he begins a third illustration. It's an illustration of an illustration of an illustration. Like, are you lost yet? Like, maybe this is why you don't want to come to church because it's so confusing. This is an illustration within an illustration and a illu- within an illustration. And like, it's, it's like, like the movie Inception, right? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a dream within a dream within a dream. And so if you've never seen the movie uh, uh, Inception, uh, watch more movies, guys. Come on. Watch a good movie. That's your application of today's sermon. Go home and watch Inception for Father's Day. And to give you a little Inception detail, let me give you a totem to anchor you right now in the real world, okay? Something that will help you understand where you are in God's story. 1 Corinthians is a book filled with warnings. It's filled with warnings and promises, but the warnings, man, are severe. In fact, the longest and most intense warning in this book is right here in chapter 10, where Paul illustrates using real historical people who thought and behaved much like the Corinthians, and as a result, became disqualified from the promise God had made to them. Like in these verses, Paul tells the story of a group of Saved people, people who had been rescued from bondage in Egypt, the Israelites, as they leave Egypt and go into the wilderness, they begin to commit idolatry and commit immorality. And as a result of the rebellion against God, they forfeit the promise that God had made to them to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Guys, and so Paul is about to say, basically, you can either learn from history or you can repeat history. And he begins, verse 1, For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. Like he's saying, guys, I don't want you to be clueless. I don't want you to be ignorant, right? I don't want you to think something that's not true about you and the path that you're on. Like he's writing to people who are literally walking the path of disqualification. Like they're literally walking on the path of falling away from Jesus and forfeiting the promises of reward. Some of them are just at the fork in the road and they're looking at the people on the wrong path and they're like, should I follow them? And so Paul's just saying, listen, guys, I don't want y'all to be ignorant right? We, we all, they all were under the cloud. All of our ancestors were under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. This comes from Exodus chapter 13. In Exodus 13, we're told that the Lord himself, Yahweh, led the people of Israel in the presence of a cloud by day and a, a pillar of fire by night. I mean, this was an amazing spiritual blessing that all here, all of Israel got to experience. Can you even imagine that? Like, have you ever thought, you know what, if God would just show himself, then I would never doubt again. Like if God would just show his power, if God would just do something that was so stunning that I couldn't deny him, I would never doubt him again. But the Israelites went to bed every night with a God nightlight. 
like the pillar of fire, the presence of God was right there at the camp every single night. And yet they forfeited the promise that God had made to them. They would wake up in the daytime and the cloud would cover them so they wouldn't be burned by the sun. And it says that all of them, like this is a very important word in this passage, like five times it's used in four different verses because all of Israel had the same experience, not just a select few. They all had the same blessings. The blessing of redemption by the blood of a lamb placed on the doorpost of their house. They all experienced the blessing of deliverance from slavery and the blessing of God's presence traveling with them. They were just like us. They were just like Corinth. Like that's Paul's point here. As you read this story of these ancient people, you need to understand they're just like us. In fact, in verse 2, he says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Like Israel, just like us Christians, experienced a baptism, a journey through water that symbolized a new birth as a nation under the authority of Moses. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and the rock was Christ. Now, about 70 folks went into Egypt 420 years earlier, right? The house of Israel, like, like Jacob's descendants, they all came into Egypt And 420 years later, between two and three million people make their trek out of bondage and slavery. And it says in Exodus 16 that God fed them with bread from heaven. Like if if you have two to three million people, it takes somewhere about three to four million pounds of food every day just to sustain them. And God provided that every single day. I mean, the equivalent of a freight train of food that's three miles long every single day. And not just food. Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 tells us that God gave them water in the midst of the desert. It would take about 11 million gallons each day to provide for them. And so they had, according to Paul, the equivalent of a baptism and the equivalent of the Lord's Supper. They, like Corinth, they were just like us. Hutto Bible, they were just like us. And beyond this incredible miracle, Christ himself went with them. Like Moses often refers to Yahweh as the rock of Israel. Like, and so the spiritual nourishment provided by God was provided directly from Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Like all these great blessings, all these great things that happened to these people, and yet God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies are scattered in the wilderness because they rebelled against God. He takes them to the edge of the promised land, 
They send in spies. The spies come back with a bad report except for Joshua and Caleb. They say the land is filled with fortified cities and giants were like grasshoppers to them. Sure, it's nice. It's flowing with milk and honey, but they will kill all of us. And so they turn back. And as a result of this, they die in the wilderness. In fact, they cry out in Numbers 14. The whole assembly says, if only we had died in Egypt, if only we had died in this wilderness. Guys, be careful what you wish for. Like that's what they wished for and that's what they got. Like all of their spiritual advantages did not exempt them from the consequences of their sin. Like they were disqualified from receiving the prize of entering into the promised land. Every adult male who left Egypt, with two exceptions, Caleb and Joshua, died in the desert without getting to enter into the promised land. Verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Paul tells us this story, and he says, hey, these things happened. Like, this is real. This is history. This isn't a fable. This isn't a myth. These things happened, but they happened as examples. The word in the Greek is topoi, which is from which we get the word type or typology. Like, what he's saying is these Exodus stories are not just stories. They did happen, but they're not just stories. They're more than that. They're examples. Like they tell us about Israel, but they also tell us about us. Like they tell us about Israel's behavior and their attitude and their heart, but they also tell us about us, our behavior, our attitude, what we fail at. They serve as a warning for us to keep us from desiring evil things. What kind of evil things? And so he unpacks that. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. You know, in Exodus 32, that's where this quote comes from. Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and the people are partying at the foot of the mountain worshiping a golden calf. Idolatry. I mean, the presence of God like that led them out of Egypt in the form of a cloud and a pillar of fire that led them through the Red Sea and collapsed over the army of Egypt. And here they are like 30 seconds later. Like, I just don't get it. Like, you know, if you ever read this in the book of Exodus, you're thinking, what is wrong with these people? Like if they were just singing about deliverance like five seconds ago, and now they're worshiping a golden calf and committing sexual immorality? Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. This is from Numbers 25 where they get close to another kingdom, the Moabites, and their women look hot, and so they just go in and get them and sleep with them in the presence of all of Israel. And so God sends judgment until one of the priests, Phineas, like steps in and stops what's going on. Numbers 25, great passage to read. Verse 9, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Numbers 21, 
we see the nation of Israel whining and basically saying, we've done so much in following you and eating everything you provided and drinking the water that you've given us and doing everything else, but you're not living up to your side of the bargain. We're still here in the wilderness. Like, why won't you let us into the land, even though they've disobeyed him at this point? And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. That word grumble means to murmur. It means to complain. Like, it's, it carries the idea of discontentment. And this quote comes from Numbers chapter 11, but the sin of grumbling and murmuring is mentioned 10 times in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers. I remember the guy who discipled me, Charles Ellis, used to tell me that every time I murmur, every time I complain, every time I grumble, I'm denying the sovereignty of God. And I'm like, how does that even work? And he said, well, it's kind of like this. You're driving down the road, and you're trying to get home for dinner, and then you miss the green light. It goes yellow, and then quickly red. You have to stop, and you're like, rassin, frassin, frassle, fossil, or however you cuss and whatever you say. Whatever murmuring sounds like to you, you're like, oh, you're so frustrated. At who? Like, is, is there someone beyond, like, text dot, you know, that could have made that light green for you just another millisecond. Like, is he the one you're complaining against? Is the sovereign ruler of all the universe, like, is he, is it okay for sometimes him to make your life not wonderful and smooth and easy? Every time we grumble, we deny the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the providence of God, that he could use even that in our life. And so Paul concludes, these things happen to them as examples. They're not legends. Remember, they're not parables. They actually happened. They happened as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Like these examples, these types that happen over and over and over form a pattern, and if you look at your life, it is often parallel with the nation of Israel. Like the same grumbling, the same complaining, the same kind of putting your toe in the water of sin. Like if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And if you see the pattern in others, learn from the pattern. If you see the pattern in yourself, learn from the pattern. Like I'm the youngest of 13 kids in my family. I mean, y'all know that. Bobby, Johnny, Timmy, Frankie, Michael, Larry, Chucky, Jimmy, Bonnie, Norma, Patsy, Laura, and Ricky. 13. I'm the youngest, and of my siblings, I'm the only one that didn't fall into alcoholism or drug addiction or just complete dysfunctional relationships. And the only reason I didn't is because I'm a slow learner, but you know what? 12 bad examples going ahead of me, even I can learn that, right? Like I would see the choices that were, they were making on the front end that looked so good. And then I would see them crash and burn. And I would see that happen to this sibling and this sibling and this sibling. And by the time it was my choice, I thought, huh, even as a non-Christian, huh, this doesn't seem like it goes well. 
Like, I probably should choose a different pattern for my life and not repeat the same mistakes as everyone else in my family. You see, everyone, guys, as Charles Ellis, my, the guy who discipled me, used to tell me, everyone is a role model. Everyone is a role model. You're just not necessarily a good one. Right? But you can learn something even from the bad examples. You can learn the path you don't want to go down. You can realize, hey, you know what? This guy, his life is ending terribly. I'm going to get over here and try this lane. And Paul writes in verse 12, so, and here's his whole point. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Do you think you're standing firm? Are you overconfident? Are you prideful? I would never, ever do that. Never, never, ever, ever. We all have knowledge. We know it's just an idol. There's only one God. It's not a big deal. I would never cross that line. Now, Gordon McDonald, a Christian writer, scholar, head of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship back in the 70s and 80s, was speaking away at a conference, and the young college student, the guy who picked him up at the airport, asked him this question. Dr. McDonald, if Satan were to take you down, like if he were to remove you like, like from the playing field of the kingdom, like what issue would he use to bring you down? What sin issue would he go after? Which was an incredibly personal question, right? Like, I just met you, and you're telling me about my deepest struggle. And so he answered in a very pastoral fashion, right? Oh, son, I have so many weaknesses, so many areas where I could fall or fail. But I, you know what? I know this one thing. I will never, ever be unfaithful to my wife. Never. There's so many other areas, pride and, you know, stupidity, whatever, but I'll never cheat on my wife. And he said within 48 hours, he had done just that. Lost his ministry, almost lost his marriage. And for two years, he was under church discipline, just kind of getting his life back in order, getting his marriage back in order, getting in counseling. And two years later, he got up and spoke for the very first time. And the first thing he said was this, never say, I cannot be taken. Never, never, never say, I cannot be taken. First, you're not that strong. And second, the enemy is listening. Never say, I cannot be taken. Don't be cocky. You're not exempt. Like you could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. And here's a test, right? What are you allowing in your life right now that a younger version of you who was walking with the Lord and maybe was a little bit stricter and more legalistic, that a younger version of you would look in and say, what the heck? That's so stupid. Are you, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Like, what are you allowing in your life right now? Some sort of freedom, some sort of indulgence, something that you think is no big deal. It's just so small. That if you were looking in on that situation, you would say to your older self, stop that, you fool. Years ago, I heard this great illustration news story that could only have come out of Florida, I'm sure. A 911 call is received, and they hear somebody who is like in distress calling for help. 
They don't know what the problem is, but they arrive at their house. They break down the door. They hear the noise in the bedroom. They go into a bedroom, and then they find this man laying in bed like this, and they see something they've never seen before. He is being crushed by a giant python. It's around his whole body. It's around his neck. He's crying out for help. All the firemen, they get in there. They try to pull it off, but they can't. They end up having to get a hacksaw, and they cut the python off the guy. And when he's finally freed, when they've cared for him, they ask him, what in the world happened? Did you leave a window open? No. That It was my pet python. How did he get out of its cage? Well, you know, I I often would let him out of his cage. In fact, he... He slept in my bed, at the foot of my bed, almost every night. We've never had this problem before. What? You had a python sleeping at your bed. Yeah, I've had it since he was a little baby, since he was really small. Like, it would never have done this. I don't know what happened. And you think, well, you are the dumbest person I've ever met. <laughs> like a giant snake that can crush and eat you. But Christian, let me ask you, what's your python? What's your little pet thing that nobody knows about that you're kept, you're keeping as a pet? It's small. It would never crush you. It would never devour you. See, that's the warning, but here's the promise. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it. God understands your failures, and when you fail, God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so in the midst of a temptation, When our faithfulness is tested, we draw on the faithfulness of God because the temptations we face are not not uncommon. They're common. They're the kind of things that people have faced before us and will face after us. And so we just have to ask the question of these other believers, how were they able to resist this temptation? And I can't because I've met people and had conversations with folks who've said, I read this verse to them, quoted it to them, and they've said, I believe that. I know it's true. I just don't know if it's true for me. I believe it. I know it's true, but it doesn't feel true. I feel like this temptation is so big. It's so, it's got such a grip on me that I can't say no to it. Like there is no way out of this temptation. To which I respond, well, it sounds like you missed your, your off ramp. It seems like God has provided a way out of this temptation, but it was yesterday or the day before or six months ago. He's probably provided a hundred ways out and you've turned your nose up at them at every single time. So what is the way out Paul was referring to? Well, first of all, it's the gospel. The gospel is our way out of the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Because of what Jesus did for me, I will never face eternal judgment. And because what Jesus has provided for me through the gospel, I can resist temptation by leaning into the gospel, leaning into my new identity, and leaning into the grace that he provides. That's how I resist temptation. You know, I don't don't do what, like, the kid in the story goes, like, a mom hears her little boy 
in the kitchen making a noise. And she says, Timmy, what are you doing? Well, Timmy's climbed up on the counter and he's gotten the cookie jar down and he's got it in his lap and he's opening the lid and he's just gazing at those beautiful cookies. And she says, Timmy, what are you doing? And Timothy, Timmy responds back, uh, I'm fighting temptation. <laughs> That's not how you fight temptation. Instead, you lean into the gospel and you use the means of grace God has provided, the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. Even, even when Jesus was tempted, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Like Christians, we need to fill our mind with the word of God. We need to treasure it in our heart. We need to commit it to memory so that the spirit of God has truth to work with when we face a temptation. But guys, another means of grace is the people of God. We're not in this alone. Like write this down. We can either stand together or we will. We will fall alone. We can stand together or we can fall alone. You know, in the original language of this passage, something interesting happens in verses 12 and 13. When Paul says, be careful thinking you stand lest you fall, the yous are singular. He's saying, listen, you individually, be careful thinking you stand like that, you, that you're okay, that it's all good, that you could get up to the line and nothing's going to happen lest you individually fall. And then in verse 13, he switches to plural pronouns when he makes this amazing promise. No temptation has seized y'all, plural, but except what is common to man and God is faithful, he will not allow y'all to be tempted beyond what y'all can bear. See, there's a lot of temptations that I could fall for. There are so many that you individually could fall for, but there is no temptation that us together, that y'all cannot stand against if you stand together. Like who's standing with you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my church family here, my brothers and sisters, for our guests. Lord, I thank you that uh, as we come to the table of communion, to remember the gospel, to remember the sacrifice of your son for my sin, for the sins of the world. We know that the gospel isn't something we left way back when, when we trusted you, but it's what we rely on every day. We preach the gospel to our own often unbelieving hearts to remind ourselves that because of Jesus, because of grace, because of the cross, because of what he did once and for all, we are made right with a holy God, filled with the spirit of God and set on a new path of righteousness. We thank you for that reminder. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as the band plays. If you could come and get your elements of communion and take them back to your seat and we'll take them together. Just a couple of verses later in chapter 10, Paul writes, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body. 
for we all share the same one loaf. Guys, every week, I feel like I literally have a front row seat to the grace of God, just sitting here and watching my brothers and sisters come to the table of communion to take the body and the blood of Christ. Like communion is a sacrament that is done in community with other believers. And we, in doing so, we remember and we proclaim the death of Christ on our behalf. Like it involves drinking a cup of wine or juice that Paul calls a participation in. Literally, the word is koinonia, fellowship, communion with the blood of Christ. It also involves eating bread that Paul calls a participation in, same word, the body of Christ, referring to both Jesus and the church. And so, like, there's mystery there that as the church tries to unpack it, it almost gets muddied more. It's a mystery. Like that in some unique way, as we come to the table of communion, we are participating in the body and in the blood of Christ. Like communion shows us where, I tr- where our true identity is found in connection to Jesus and in connection with his followers. And so if you ever wonder who you are, this is who you are. The body of Christ which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. And the blood of Christ poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of him. The Lord's Supper is not just food and drink. It's an act of worship that enacts our union with God and our union with one another. Let's worship together. some uh, elders and the wives down front if anyone needs to talk or needs somebody to pray with them as an application of this message uh, some of y'all need to get a hacksaw and carve that stuff out of your life that you know is only going to grow and devour you but all of us need to uh, take hold of the means of grace that God provides through the word of God the spirit of God and the people of God Uh, We'd love to talk to you and help you know how to, exactly how to do that. And so we'll be down front for that. Uh, Finally, uh, today marks a very special day. Uh, It marks the 10th anniversary of one of our staff members. I'm going to invite Janine Hill to come down front. Oh, there she is. She's jumped down here. Janine has been on our staff for 10 years and has promised to serve another 40, which is good. Uh, Because then you would be, what, like 110? You're like 70 now. Yeah, Yeah, every year on staff is two for the real world. But uh, Janine, you've been a huge blessing to our church. You make us look good. Uh, You make me look good. And most importantly, uh, you you make... uh, the, the bride of Christ, the son of God, look good by your faithful service. And so we're so thankful for you. And uh, the elders, through the generosity of your church family, uh, want to provide a weekend away for you and Lester uh, uh, somewhere in the hill country. And uh, in addition to that, uh, a, a, a nice financial uh, gift or bonus for you that uh, you can use to buy something pretty for Lester. Okay. <laughs> Lester's in this too. He made made sure I told you that. So. Here for free all the time.
He does. He does. So, so let me pray for Janine and we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for my sister and my, uh, my co-laborer in the gospel, the servant to your church and to your son. I pray you would bless her this day. I pray that as she serves you, uh, she would find her rest and her strength in you, that she would wait on the Lord, that you would renew her strength so that she would rise up with wings as an eagle, that she would walk and not grow weary, that she would run and not faint. Bless her this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, happy Father's Day. God bless you.